So Mark 15 and verse 16 says, The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out, Hail, King of the Jews! And again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. They took off the purple robe and put his clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see which or what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on the right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled their insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him amongst themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Amen. Thank you, Dave. A very good morning to you all. You hope you're all feeling blessed. It's good to be together again, isn't it? And it's good to look at God's word together. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Thank you. And this is 16 to 32. Jesus mocked and crucified. If you'd like the page number, it's 1022, 1022. And this is an awesome passage of scripture, isn't it? And I've got to be honest, we're not going to have time to look at it all this morning, but I'm preaching next Sunday morning, so I can do a bit of catch-up then. So I think we're probably only going to get to verse 21, believe it or not. Even though it's quite a small passage, I found there's a lot in there, a lot of important things. Now, if you had to write down as many words as you could to describe Jesus, what words would you write down? I don't know if any of the children want to shout some words out. Yes, Tilly? King of kings, yeah, excellent, yeah. You got something, Hannah? No, sorry to put you on the spot. But probably a lot of words we'd probably think of is like God, Christ, Lord. But like Tilly said, I think king would probably be in everyone's top five, wouldn't it? King. And that is so true, isn't it? Jesus is king till he gave the proper, long, biblical title, isn't it? King of kings. Jesus is king of kings. And when you think of a king, 
What sort of image maybe comes to your mind? When you think of a king, what you see, what sort of picture do you see? I think it's probably fair to say a crown and a robe. Do you think so? A crown and a robe. And look at this description of Jesus. This description of King Jesus, who's King of King and Lords of Lords, in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. It's a passage we often refer to in the preaching at the church here. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. Incredible passage of scriptures now. Look at this description of Jesus. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his throne and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I don't know about you, but that's an awesome description of Jesus, isn't it? An awesome picture of King Jesus. Can you imagine if Jesus would have come looking like that in his first coming, when he became flesh and blood those 2,000 or so years ago? Can you imagine if Jesus came looking like that? But that's not how Jesus came, was it? Jesus looked like an ordinary man when he became flesh and blood for those 33 years or so. He looked like an ordinary man. But he looks like that now. And no doubt he would have looked like that in all of eternity. So why did Jesus... Come looking like an ordinary man. Well, because he's a humble king. Jesus was no less king when he became flesh and blood for those 33 years on this earth, did he? No, Jesus was a humble king. What do we read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11? Again, incredible words of scripture, aren't they? Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. The words we've looked at on a Sunday night as we work through the book of Philippians, wasn't it? Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now what do you think would have happened if Jesus would have come in his first coming, looking like he's described in Revelation chapter 19? Eyes like blazing fire. If he would have come with a crown and with a robe. What do you think would have happened? Well, I think probably out of terror, everyone would have bowed the knee, wouldn't they? Everyone would have bowed the knee. But that's not how Jesus works, is it? Jesus wanted everyone to gladly bow the knee. Gladly and lovingly bow the knee to him. And confess him as king. Confess him as Lord. Now, there's a story I heard. It's probably not true, but it's about a king who didn't have a queen. So he went on a mission to find a bride. And as he was traveling through his kingdom, he went through a particularly poor part of the kingdom. And he saw a beautiful peasant girl and he fell in love with her. And he thought to himself, that is my bride. That is my queen. I'm going to try and win her. But then he thought to himself, if I went up to her and said, I want to marry you. I want you to become my bride, my queen. And if she'd have seen the crown on my head and the robe around me, probably out of terror, she'd have said yes. By force or by terror, she would become my bride. But the king said, but I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do, I'm going to lay aside my crown. I'm going to take off my royal robe. And I'm going to disguise myself as one of the people, one of the subjects of this kingdom. And I'm going to meet this girl. And I'm going to try and win her. And that's what the king did. Laid aside his crown, his royal robe. And then he declared his love to this poor peasant girl who then became his bride, who then became his queen. And that's very much what Jesus has done. Jesus laid aside his kingly crown. He laid aside his royal robe. He became one of us so that we could become his bride. Isn't that wonderful? That's what the church is, the bride of Christ. He loves us. He's declared his love for us. Now, last week, we noted that, humanly speaking, Jesus didn't look very much like a king as he stood before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, in verses 1 to 15. Do you remember that? Jesus didn't look very much like a king standing before Pontius Pilate in verses 1 to 15. Why? Because Jesus had no possessions, did he? He had no followers. His hands were tied. His face was covered in spit and blood. He had no royal robe, no kingly crown. But this morning, in verses 16 to 20, for the first time in Jesus' earthly ministry, he wears a crown and a robe. Isn't that interesting? For the first time in Jesus' earthly ministry... When he became flesh and blood for those 33 years or so, 2,000 years ago, he wears a crown and a robe. Here 
in Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 20. What do we read there? The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling to their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they'd mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then led him out to crucify him. Now, obviously, the soldiers weren't actually paying homage to Jesus, were they? They weren't actually worshipping him. What were they doing? They were just mocking him. The soldiers were mocking the Jesus, the same Jesus that's described to us in Revelation 19. The soldiers are mocking King Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They're mocking God, the eternal son. But what the soldiers didn't realize, that at the last day, they would have to bow the knee again to the same Jesus, and then they would confess him as Lord. And what the soldiers couldn't see is that there were millions of angels worshipping Jesus at that very time, no doubt. As Jesus was wearing this rough, dirty, purple robe, as he was wearing this crown of thorns that was twisted together, with his face covered in blood and spit, no doubt a hundred million angels were worshipping him, Jesus Christ, God the Eternal Son. And on the last day, everyone is going to have to bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord, aren't they? One day, at the last day, every single human being who's ever lived on this planet are going to have to bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. Every atheist, every Muslim, every Buddhist, every Hindu, every Sikh are going to bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. But it'll be far too late then. It'll be too late then. Everyone who dies without gladly and lovingly bowing the knee to Jesus and confessing him as Lord now, in this lifetime, will be thrown into hell forever at the last day. Now is the time to bow the knee to Jesus and to confess him as Lord, isn't it? And if I could pause just for a second, have you done that? Have you gladly and lovingly bowed the knee to Jesus and confessed him as Lord, confessed him as King. Have you done that? Do it today if you haven't, before it's too late. Today's the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Now, I believe that the crown of thorns is significant. It is such a powerful symbol, isn't it? This crown of thorns. What is significant about the crown of thorns? What is the powerful symbol behind that? Well, what did the Lord God say to Adam after he fell in the Garden of Eden? 
What do we read in Genesis 3, verses 17 and 18? Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. To Adam, he said, the Lord God said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It, the ground, will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. It's not interesting. So whenever we see thorns, what should we think of? Whenever we see thorns, Austin, you did a bit of gardening yesterday, did you? Did you find any thorns? Or, your garden's quite clean now, isn't it? No thorns. Leaves. Yeah, mainly leaves, yeah. But thorns, whenever we see thorns, it should remind us that we live in a sinful, fallen, cursed world, don't we? Thorns are a symbol of the curse. And what did Jesus do? Jesus wore the curse on his head. Isn't that so powerful? He wore the curse for us on his head. Galatians chapter 3 tells us that Jesus became a curse for us. Isn't that so powerful? Um, now, as, uh, as Dave uh, told us um, earlier, Jesus had tens of thousands of angels at his disposal, didn't he? And Jesus could have stopped all the mocking, couldn't he? Jesus could have stopped the torture. Jesus could have stopped the beatings he was receiving with a stick. At any moment, at any moment, he could have called on his father, I've had enough of this. As the crown of thorns was being pushed into his skull, he could have said, I'm not putting up with this anymore. As the spit and the blood was pouring down his face, he could have said, I've had enough of this. But he didn't, did he? He didn't. He went through it all for us. And I find as we read Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 20, we really see how much Jesus loves us, don't we? But he's willing to go through that suffering, through that humiliation for us, for our sins. Now, let's move on to verse 21. What do we read in Mark chapter 15, verse 21? A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. Isn't that interesting? Someone had to be forced to carry Jesus' cross. So why didn't Jesus carry it himself? Well, I think by now, Jesus would have been half dead already. Remember, he's had a beating. He's already been tortured and he's been flogged. Or maybe scourged is probably the better way, isn't it? Apparently, it would have been a whip with sort of nine strands on it. And at the end, there would have been maybe jagged bones or lead tips and his back would have been raw. It would have been ploughed. So no doubt, Jesus, after the beatings, the flogging, the torture, would have been so weak. And also, no doubt, Jesus 
would have been dreading what was about to happen to him. Jesus was dreading becoming sin for you and me whilst hanging on that cross. Jesus was dreading the fact for about three hours he would be separated from his father for the first time in time and eternity. Can you imagine that? I think all of that, the physical pain and agony and the spiritual pain and agony, must have weakened Jesus so much that he couldn't even carry his own cross. So Jesus is literally crushed here, isn't he? But then something happens to this man named Simon of Cyrene that must have changed his life and his family's life forever. Don't you think so? Now, Simon of Cyrene had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. So why are we given so much detail here? Why are we told about a man called Simon of Cyrene, who's the father of Alexander and Rufus? Well, no doubt, Simon of Cyrene, Alexander and Rufus would have been well known to the people at the time. So after Mark had written his gospel, and he had started circulating it, and the church had started circulating it, people were reading Mark chapter 15. Obviously, there were no chapters when it first came out. And they said, oh, yeah, we know who this is. We know who Simon of Cyrene is. We know his sons, Alexander and Rufus. So they would have been well-known people, Simon, Alexander, and Rufus. Because otherwise, Mark would have just said, and a man, uh, I've, you know, just a man was forced to carry Jesus' cross. No, it's significant. Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So these people were well-known to the church at the time, no doubt. So who was Simon of Cyrene? Well, a man called Simon from Cyrene. <laughs> Let's have a look at the map. Where on earth is Cyrene? Can anyone see Cyrene there? It's in the continent of Africa. So it's there. So is that modern-day Libya, apparently? So in the huge continent of Africa. Modern-day Libya. So where's Jerusalem? Jerusalem is over there. So he'd have come all the way from Cyrene to Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? But then the question is, what on earth is Simon of Cyrene doing in Jerusalem? Well, it's important to remember that it was during Passover. This was during Passover. The Passover festival was happening in Jerusalem. And Passover was one of the um, pilgrim feasts. There were three pilgrim feasts, sort of Passover, Pentecost, and Feast of Tabernacles. So for these three feasts, Jews from all over the world would travel to Jerusalem. They would do a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, Pentecost, and Feast of Tabernacles. And we know, we know from Scripture that Jews from Cyrene would travel to Jerusalem. How do we know that? Well, in Acts chapter 2, Jews from Cyrene traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. What do we read in Acts chapter 2, verses 5 to 11? Uh, Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 5. 
Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Uh, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, in our own languages. Isn't that interesting? But that still doesn't tell us why Simon of Cyrene and his family were famous. Why was Simon, Alexander and Rufus famous? Well, what do we read in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 21? This is interesting. Acts 11, verses 19 to 21. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, Men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, we don't know for a fact, but maybe Simon of Cyrene and his family were part of the team who planted the first church in Antioch. Now, Antioch was a place where people were called Christians for the very first time. So I wonder if Simon of Cyrene and his family uh, planted that church in Antioch. And they were obviously sort of well up for the gospel. They were well-known gospel people. I wonder if they also planted a church in Rome because what do we read in Romans chapter 16, verse 13? Greet Rufus. I wonder if that could have been Simon's son, Simon of Cyrene's son. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. And I wonder if that might be sort of, maybe Simon of Cyrene has passed away now, gone to glory, and that's his widow there who was good to the Apostle Paul, Rufus' mother. So we don't know. We don't actually know for a fact. But it's very likely, isn't it? It's very likely that Simon of Cyrene was a Jew who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And maybe he stayed an extra 50 days until Pentecost, or he went back to Cyrene and came back 50 days later to celebrate Pentecost. And maybe Simon of Cyrene heard the Apostle Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. He heard the gospel, believed the gospel, repented, got baptized, and joined the church in Jerusalem where Stephen was a deacon. And then got sent out, well, he sort of 
scattered with a church in Jerusalem and planted a church in Antioch, and then maybe his family planted a church in Rome. Well, we don't know. We don't know for a fact. But we can safely say that Simon of Cyrene and his family were famous Christians, weren't they? Famous Christians. People would have known about them when Mark's gospel was being circulated. Now, here's something for us to think about. When Simon of Cyrene was converted, I wonder how he felt. I wonder how Simon of Cyrene felt as he remembered the day when he had to carry Jesus' cross. I wonder how he felt. I think he'd have had a mixture of emotions. Don't you think so? I think, firstly, he might have felt a bit of guilt. He might have thought, I played my part. I played my part in Jesus' torture and execution. Because I carried the instrument that was used to kill Jesus. How would you feel if you were the one who carried Jesus' cross up that hill? The cross where Jesus was tortured and executed on. I think you would feel a bit of guilt, wouldn't you? Said, oh, I played my part in torturing and executing Jesus. But I think Simon of Cyrene would have also have felt some honor and privilege as well. He'd have thought, yeah, I carried the cross on which the Son of God suffered, bled and died to save the world. And you'd have thought, whoa, what an awesome privilege that I, I had. I carried the cross of the Son of God, the instrument that the Son of God used to save the world. And do you know what? I think we can feel sort of similar feelings today. Because each and every single one of us have played our part in Jesus' torture and execution. It was my sin that held him there. It was my sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross. It was your sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross. But you know what? I think we can also, as Christians, have some feelings of honor and privilege that God also uses us to save sinners as well. God uses us in his work to save sinners. And that's an awesome privilege, isn't it? An incredible honor. Now, obviously, we don't save sinners, do we? If someone asks me, oh, how many souls have you saved? I've none. I can't save a soul, isn't it? As much as I can't make an universe out of nothing. It's only Jesus who saves a soul. But God can use us, he can use the church in his hands as instruments to take the gospel to a lost and dying world. Because what, what do we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 to 24? God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we... Preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Isn't that interesting? Now, obviously, the Apostle Paul, the Apostles, and the church, we don't save anyone, but we preach, don't we? We preach the gospel, we tell of Christ crucified, and God uses that to save souls. And what do we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? In the second half of verse 22 and verse 23, the Apostle Paul, speaking to the local church at Corinth, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Again, the Apostle Paul never saved a soul, did he? But he was used by the Lord God for the saving of many souls. And then the last one then, James chapter 5, verse 20. It says, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So when we see Simon of Cyrene, and when we think of some of the emotions he might have felt after becoming a believer, he might have felt emotions of guilt and shame. He said, yeah, I played my part in Jesus' torture and execution. We can sort of say the same, can't we? We definitely played our part in Jesus' torture and execution. But also, Simon of Cyrene would have felt incredible honor, wouldn't he? And would have realized how privileged he was. Actually, I was chosen by God. I was used by God to carry that cross up the hill. That cross that Jesus used to save the world. And we can feel the same way today, isn't it? When God gives us an opportunity to tell someone the gospel, it's like, oh, why would you use me? And there's nothing, there's nothing that compare, can compare to someone maybe approaching you and saying, I've just become a Christian. You know, it probably hasn't happened as many times to me as I'd have liked, but it has happened a few times where someone has just said, thank you for telling me the gospel. I've just become a Christian. And then our response is, oh, why me? What an honor, what a privilege that God would choose to use a sinful, weak sinner like me to tell someone the gospel. Sometimes he just uses us, doesn't he? Um, I think I've shared with some of you that me and Austin stayed at an uh, interesting hotel uh, during the minister's conference last week. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't pray about this. Oh, God, please give me an opportunity to tell the gospel to this uh, Chinese man who never wore anything on his feet, did he? He was an interesting character. So he's from Hong Kong originally, and he's called Henry. And God was basically saying, right, Davin Austin... Whether you like it or not, I'm going to use you to tell this poor guy the gospel. You haven't prayed about it. You haven't prepared your heart. But I'm going to use you anyway. And he just sort of asked the question, so where are you from? And what are you doing here? What's happening at the conference? And it's like an open goal then, isn't it? Oh, we're, we're sort of leaders of churches from all over the country. And we've come for the conference here. And then he says, so what, what are you? Are you um, Christian? Um, and said, yeah, yeah, we're Christian. I said, oh, okay, yeah, well, well, I'm not a Christian. You know, my background is sort of Buddhist. But um, 
Uh, yeah, all, all religions are good, don't they? I said, no, they're not. <laughs> not all religions are good. There's one true religion. There's one true faith. Jesus Christ, isn't it? That's what makes Christianity better. That's what makes Jesus better than all other religions. None of those religions, the leader of Islam and Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, none of them died on a cross and rose again. So we're able to tell Henry, Jesus loves people like you, that he died for you and rose again for you. And um, he did say, didn't he, that he had a near-death experience. And Austin's able to say, well, Jesus isn't ready for you yet, is he, for you to die. He's keeping you alive so you could come to know him. And then we can walk away from a situation like that and say, oh, God, what a privilege, what an honor that you would use us as instruments in your hand to tell others the gospel. And as we're coming towards Christmas, it's a huge, huge opportunity we have, isn't it, to be used as instruments in God's hands. So many people singing carols, thinking about nativity scenes. It's a brilliant opportunity for us, isn't it? To be used as instruments in God's hands to share the gospel.